Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Prince Harry's book, Spare, which has sold 1.4 million copies across all formats in the UK, the United States and Canada. So what does it tell us about the UK and our place in the world and what does it say about the monarchy and the media? We're going to be joined by journalist and comedian Ava Vidal, the US-based royal commentator R.S. Locke, and Mick Wright, a media pundit. Before that, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. We don't have a millionaire backer or the support of large corporations. We rely on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless, non-partisan journalism, exposing corruption and holding the powerful to account. You'll find out how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. And we've got a, a fantastic cast list, as I say, uh, Ala Vidal, we've got R.S. Locke, we've got Mick Wright. But if you want to join in as well, we will be taking one or two of your calls, particularly if you've actually read the book Spare, because I know hundreds of thousands of people have, then feel free to join in. I want to start with Mick Wright, who has now written no fewer than four articles about the memoir on his Substack. Mick goes out under the name Broken Bottle Boy, and I really do recommend his Substack to you. Mick, for people who aren't sure, you've written in detail about this, why this story really matters, even if you don't particularly care much for monarchy and royalty. Hi, Adrian. How are you doing? Oh, yeah, you're right. Yes, good. Well, it matters, you know, for a ton of reasons. It's funny when you say he's written no fewer than four articles. Well, the reason being is because the first thing I wrote was around the notion of Harry and the parts of the book about Afghanistan and the number of people that he believes he killed in Afghanistan. So there was around the hypocrisy of the media and its approach to that, given that when he was still on side, as it were, with the British media, they were celebrating him as a hero for that exact thing and also others who have talked about how many people they've killed in wars treated very differently because they're not criticizing the media and then the other three posts are all coming from uh, different perspectives around this so moving on to talking about the response of the media and the palace this false notion that the palace has not responded there's been no official response but as we discussed you know in our previous space there obviously has been through briefings and back channels and friends of king charles and friends of prince william that's been happening and then finally i came to talking about the book itself and for me what i wanted to look at in the book is being a, a media critic and my thing being around uh, analyzing the media well what was the book about for me in a big way it was about harry's response to the media the experience of someone whose entire life has been written about and mediated through the media responding back and what's been very interesting about that is the technique used in the book of not naming individual journalists though making it clear exactly who they are has driven them absolutely bonkers the dan wartons of this world the camilla tomines of this world they've all written pieces saying this bit this bit was definitely about me and i'm livid about it and it's so interesting the way they respond to having 
themselves written about they really can't handle it and it's very interesting from people whose whole shtick is writing about someone else telling someone else's story uh, giving their opinions on others but they're not very comfortable when uh, that happens to them and why why does the response to prince harry's book matter to us more generally it should matter because it tells you a lot about the attitudes of the british press the relationship of the british press to the wider british media and the problem more broadly of monarchy and of a country in which unearned privilege can be bestowed on you at birth and that you're treated as special somehow because you're part of this one particular family it says a lot of things and it does a lot of things beyond this book being about one person's familial experience and actually the focus on the individual is is less interesting than what it tells us about the institution and i think what harry said in the itv interview when he said he wants a family but what there is is an institution is interesting this isn't a book about a family it's a book about an institution rs lock has joined us as well and rs you've just finished reading the book thank you very much indeed for doing that just in time for this space what did you make of it Yes, I finished with uh, five minutes to spare, if you will. So uh, <laughs> definitely an intense final read for anybody who's read the book from cover to cover. The last chapters in the, the epilogue are, are pretty heart-wrenching. So I would say in terms of my overall take, I do think it's a story about a family as well as an institution. So I, I do think that you see where those two things are diametrically opposed. And for me, that was the place where the interest lies as you see the institution working to insulate itself and the mechanisms that it takes to do that and what the resulting fractures are within the family that surrounds it. So for me, I think the starting really with this moment of Princess Diana's death and the impact that that had in shaping both the nation and then also Prince Harry's life and closing with the end scenes and again, I, I assume everybody's read it or is prepared for spoilers. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. be prepared for spoilers. You've got to do that <laughs> if you're listening to this. Like, yeah, shouldn't shouldn't be new news. <laughs> I just wonder as well, how does it make Britain look? I mean, obviously, we are like any country obsessed with our own story, with our own history, and with our own news. But the book presents a different narrative of the institution clearly than the one that the institution of the royal family itself would like to present and chatting with Mick it's clear that the British media who as we've discussed before play a significant role in propping up the institution of the monarchy and publicizing it and in many respects making it appear in a positive light but of course if you're not from the UK those rules don't apply and there have been interviews in very prominent interviews with broadcasters in the United States in particular. So honestly, how do you think it makes Britain look abroad? Uh, horribly, but honestly, I was one of the people who said that back in 2019. The notion that you would have within the press and then also within parts of the institution and ultimately Harry's family that you could see the briefing that was going on. You could see what was ostensibly a, a character assassination taking place at a national level. If you think about the Africa documentary that Harry and Meghan did when they were in South Africa, the response from the world was, we love you, Meghan. We see you're struggling. 
you know, keep your head up. We're here to support you. The response from the institution was, how could you do this at this time when Will and Kate are on this Pakistan tour and that should be the focus? And every time that there are those moments where the royal family has to kind of open up their ears to the response of the world, you just see that communication back and the message that the world is sending back to them is totally different from what they're hearing in the UK. And I say the same thing with the Queen's death. And I had mentioned it at the time, when you saw just the pained interactions within the family, you saw the horrific press coverage and how it was so abusive for Megan specifically, and you're there and it's a mourning period and it's a funeral. This is supposed to be the royal family that is supposed to be this uniting force, also supposed to be, you know, regal, <laughs> noble, setting an example of being above it all. And just the pettiness, the sheer petty, punitive awfulness that was coming out at the time brought more people onto trying to understand what is going on here. How could this be? The family is supposed to be coming together to support and mourn the queen. And what is this awful background noise that's happening? And you could always get the feel that it wasn't just coming from the media in isolation, but it was being propped up by the institution. Yeah. And Mick, uh, I want to bring you back in here because the notion of don't complain, don't explain, with which the royal family, we are told, we have to be told, because, of course, it doesn't explain itself, you know, officially. But that whole don't complain, don't explain myth, if you like, is part of what Harry exposes here. And I think that's part of what the media doesn't like about the book. And in your analysis as well, there is concern about the tactics used Going back to the death of Princess Diana, the tactics of not just tabloid newspapers, but broadsheet newspapers as well. But also, and you've been keen to identify this in your writing, the fact that many of these practices did not disappear with the phone hacking trials. They're not just historic practices that the newspapers can say, oh, nothing to do with us, that was a previous generation. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, there are ongoing legal cases now about the use of private detectives by a number of newspaper groups, including News UK and Associated Newspapers. Of course, they deny doing anything illegal, and it's important to say that. But we have got people like Dan O'Hanks, who says that he was hired by The Sun to look into Meghan's family, and that when he did that, he did do illegal searches when he was doing that. We know that the relationship between the press and the palace is very close. Charles hired someone directly from the mail to work for him. So the notion of never complain, never explain, it has been a lie forever. It's a particular lie around, for instance, Camilla. We also know that shortly after Princess Diana's death, they started a concerted project to change the media perspective on Camilla and, and the way people saw her and the way that she's written about now in the press is quite hilarious given that if you go back to the time shortly after Diana's death you find all the things that they now say I can't believe anyone would say this about her they were writing extensively and it's very interesting as well to see papers like the Daily Mail and the Sun running pieces saying now oh Harry has a woman problem the new thing is to imply that he's a misogynist. If anything, he's, you know, moved in a direction away from that. 
you know, no one's perfect, but it's interesting. They liked him a lot when they felt that he was, you know, the um, roguish, roustabout prince who wasn't politically correct. But now that he's had some therapy, moved in a direction away from some of the things that his family might more easily sort of encourage in him, now they don't like that. And now they want to imply that he's a bad guy. It's fascinating and very blatant. And I think one of the most interesting things with the book is the way that the book is sort of baked to them in many ways to say, we think you're like this. He makes it very clear in the book, you know, this is the way I see the press. And what the press has been doing in the past week and the weeks before the book came out is basically proving him right. They cannot resist the bait. Ava, what are your key takeaways from the book? I think the book went further than I would expect it to have gone in some of the things that he revealed. I enjoyed the book. I thought it was good. I don't know what he wants, really. He's told his story. He's told his truth. But then he said he believes in monarchy, but just not the way it's run. But I think the way it is run, I don't think you can have one without the other. That whole cooperation thing they've got going with the press, I don't think that they can change that. Otherwise, they won't survive. So I don't know. I just think he should just carry on with Megan, live over in the US. He seems like he's a lot happier over there. He's proved himself right. A lot of people, even after the book, have just been extremely spiteful. You know, going to Air New Zealand, going to TK Maxx and getting these quotes. It's like Mick said. They're pretending they're not talking, but they are. And it's just like, are you really going to carry on with this petty behaviour? I don't think there's any way back for them here, really. I just hope they're very happy in what they choose to do. Mm. Or other about kind of what Harry wants to do, really. And I think this would also apply to Meghan in relation to the Netflix documentary series. I suppose if you've gone through a period of your life, or in Harry's case, all your life, where you feel that you've been misrepresented and the platform emerges by which you can explain yourself and where certainly outside of the UK there appears to be an appreciative response to that then perhaps the question is why why wouldn't you really? Yeah exactly I think they have to work out what they want to do and I had a space about it and the criticisms about the book from people particularly of African descent don't like the way he speaks about Africa I think he's on a journey. I think he's learning. I also heard complaints about the P word. And I I see what that's coming from. In the book, he claims he didn't know that the P word was a racial slur. I find that hard to believe. Genuinely, I really do. He said it's a bit like Aussie. I remember the whole Aussie cricket thing when that all came out. And Aussies do use it that way. But that's not the way we use it here. And I just think the way the the names that his mum was called, she was called a P lover frequently. That bit I wasn't sure about. I can see why people are a bit annoyed about that because they feel like if it's a, a book where you're telling the whole truth, tell the whole truth. But I think that he's revealed some very, very hard things. He even spoke about his Uncle Andrew, which the rest of the family <laughs> seem to pretend isn't happening. So, yeah, grateful for that. But, yeah, I, I hope they're happy. I hope they move on because there isn't any place for them back in that family or really in the roles that they had here before. And nor should they want to come back to it, to be honest, because they've been treated very badly. Let's hear from Mira, who's joining us. Hello, Mira. Welcome to Byline Radio or the Byline Times podcast. If people are listening on Catch Up, uh, what's your take on it? I finished the book. I didn't stop reading. I think I took a couple breaks and I just powered through the book. And the 
the main focus I had as I read it was the relationship between Harry and William and then their relationship separately with Charles. And so I really focused in on how they sparred over the realities of their childhood and their young adulthoods. And to each of them, it seemed their viewpoint is their truth. And it seemed to me, and I think Harry was able to articulate this very well, is that William really believes that he doesn't understand why Harry left. And I think that stems from what I read in the book about their choices, their experiences in their childhoods and their young adulthoods. They experienced two very different childhoods and they experienced two very different fathers in many ways. Charles was a different father to each of them because of their roles as the heir and the spare. And I just found it so interesting how their experiences are completely different in their each of their minds. Mira, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining in. Mick, I know I'm pushing at an open door when I divert this to you, but just hearing Mira there talking about, uh, and it's the, the title of the book, Spare, the idea that a father would treat two children differently because of their position in the hierarchy People who know about history will know, of course, that that was very common. We'll know that girls were treated differently than boys. As a father myself, the idea that one of your children would be treated preferentially relative to another kind of just highlights what an anachronism the royal family will seem to many people. It's it's like, you know, as, as a kid, I remember growing up with that notion that there was an heir and there'd be a spare, and you kind of, you know, it's a bit joking. And I think what Harry's done is kind of punch through the mythology, and he's revealed himself to be a real person, a human being, for whom that title spare always attached, which must wound him, I think, in some pretty profound way. And it, it, it's a nonsense, isn't it, that, that any child could be considered a spare Yeah, I mean, it is ludicrous. And and we talked about this in the previous space. He still believes in monarchy. And it's very difficult for him not to because it's so intrinsic to his sense of self and being. I can understand that. You know, as I said last time, I I didn't go into this book thinking, oh, well, he's going to have revealed himself as a Republican Marxist. You know, it's just, you know, it's not surprising he still thinks monarchy is some worth having because it would be very hard to move to the next step of what all of his points and his experience points to which is this is an insane way of behaving and living because king charles was never is never going to be a father in a sense that we would see normally for me fundamentally the royal family is is intrinsically an abusive family because children can't be born equal they're born immediately into a hierarchy To be born into a world where you're told you are special, but in special in a sense that traps you in a gilded cage is appalling. And it's one of the things that I also find pathetic in a lot of the columnists and news analysis responses to these things where they say, oh, well, you know, he was born rich and into this uh, wonderful situation. And you go, well, not really. It's a trap because you cannot make choices. One of the things he says in the book is even as an adult man, 
he had to go cap in hand to his father at all times to get access to money. The fact that there's lots of money there is very different to having no money at all. But it's terribly odd and emasculating and trapped situation to be in to constantly have to ask for money from your father. That's just not ordinary or normal at all. It's interesting. Somebody's picked up on your previous comments and said that the idea of Harry moving on, you know, moving on and throw it under a rug and repeat the family cycles for future trauma of generations to come. You know, maybe that isn't an option. And it just strikes me that perhaps unwittingly, probably unwittingly, because he is still a royalist, you know, Harry for the people who understand how monarchy works in the way that Mick has described, he's actually lighting a bomb under it, isn't he? Maybe that's what frightens the media and maybe that's what frightens the institution. I don't think it's his problem and I think that he is doing his best to solve his own trauma. He's got his own therapy. He's raising his children in a different way. He's treating his wife in a different way. Outside of that, I don't really think it's his responsibility to keep coming back here to sort out a problem, which, let's be honest, is far too big for him to solve. He can't do anything about this is a a centuries-old institution. It just chunders on without them. Well, you know, except that maybe he's forcing people to readdress it and to look again at what monarchy is, even though that may not be his intention. I think the people who love the monarchy still love it for the same reasons and the people who hate it still hate it for the same reasons. I don't think that his book or anything is going to change a lot of minds. I think people have got the position that they're in and they're just going to pretty much stick to it. Okay, I want to bring in uh, RS at this point. Uh, RS, I think, having read the book, (laughs) I mean, who are we as, you know, all amateur psychologists? But Harry's clearly had issues with his mental health and he's addressed them bravely and sought help for them. You know, excellent stuff. But is he prepared for the forces that he has now unleashed by putting the book out and the Netflix docuseries and so on? You know, I guess when I think about it, it's do we really believe that that the forces that are unleashed now are different than the forces that were in place two years ago, three years ago when they were working royals? It's really just the same thing continuing to repeat. But instead of being veiled, you get Jeremy Clarkson. Instead of Tom Bauer with Brazen Hussey, it's Jeremy Clarkson parading, you know, Megan through the street naked. So to me, we're just seeing less attempts to disguise what was already happening. And in that way, I do think it actually is helpful and revealing because for some people, it does take really getting that punch in the face of, oh, okay, now I understand. And I think we've seen some of that realization happen. To Ava's point about can this really change anything, I do think that there are a lot more people who are questioning the relationship between the palace and the media. So this isn't to say that the all of a sudden monarchy is going to go away and, you know, Charles is going to be the last king. But I do think that what you're seeing now is people starting to interrogate that relationship and starting to look at where are these stories coming from and are we really understanding the monarchy, what the goals are, what their place is. And so from that perspective, and also with the lawsuits that Harry has in place, the distance that he has from the institution, as well as from the UK geographically, 
gives him a position to do that. He talks about it in the book that part of the issue with Megan's copyright lawsuit, which was so evident that she was in the right and the mail on Sunday was in the wrong, that it didn't even go to trial because they had no case. And yet the royal family didn't want them to pursue it because it jeopardized their relationships. At the end of the book, you heard similarly, there's concern about the phone hacking lawsuit, or it's not even phone hacking, it's more privacy and tracers and putting in bugs in place. But the lawsuit that they have against the son that includes Doreen Lawrence and Elton John, Charles and William are concerned about that. The institution, the family are concerned about that. And that is, a again, a lawsuit that Harry wouldn't be able to pursue if he was still in this, the role that he had been. So from that standpoint, I do think that there are things that he can do that will, whether it sparks change or makes them have to pivot and rethink things, we've already seen that in the way that the monarchy approaches, how they interact with the public, what types of engagements they go on. We're seeing that start to play out as they are in this search for finding relevance. And I think really that that's really what the key is. What does it mean to be relevant going forward? And is it going to be just about, you know, can we get our face on the front page or is there something else? I think that's why Harry still has a belief in the monarchy overall, partly as Mick described, it's because of his upbringing, but also because he still believes that there is some good that the monarchy can do in the UK and in the Commonwealth. Is there something about the way in which, clearly Harry and Meghan now live in the United States, and the way in which their story is presented, which appeals to US prejudices about the UK, in that their story reveals Britain to be hierarchical, snobbish, in the case of Meghan, racist, and our media to be particularly virulent and nasty, with the idea that the United States is a meritocracy, when in fact, you know, there's this whole now trend of nepos, isn't there? People who have significant positions because of their parents, you know, because of apparent nepotism. The United States also has a vicious press. So does it just allow the United States to adopt an air of superiority, but actually a false superiority about itself in that it does have hierarchy and it does have a nasty press. They just sometimes expressed in different ways. So I do think there is a little bit of nationalism perspective that's playing in here on both sides of the pond, honestly. But I also think that the difference in perspective in America is that we value the fact that Harry and Meghan are telling their story in their own words directly rather than telling their story through the press and anonymous sources and palace insiders and the like. Whereas there, there does seem to be a psychology and part of it may just be based on the difference in media and the way that media has interacted with the palace is that somehow in the UK, the fact that these stories and these same criticisms are coming out through anonymous sources and so don't have King Charles' name on it or Prince William's name on it or pick a, a palace spokesperson, those are seen as less damaging or less open for critique 
than what Harry and Meghan are saying directly out of their mouths. So I think part of it is just that psychology of, in general, in the U.S., and speaking for myself, I respect you more when you tell it to me directly. Say it with your chest. Don't go behind a palace aid to do that. And so even if I disagree with you, I appreciate that you put your name on it. Whereas I think not just in the UK, but in the US as well, some people take a real issue with no longer being able to kind of turn a blind eye to what's happening because it's coming at them very directly. In terms of the racism and the press and the very aggressive media, that whole thing, it is different. I'm sorry. Like the the level of bias and the level of just aggressiveness of the British press is different than what we find in America. And that is what you, any person since Harry and Meghan moved, any, um, you know, any U- U.S. press, whether it be the 19th News, whether it's NPR, um, you know, there was just uh, earlier this week a, a professor who talked about, you know, he didn't understand what the Daily Mail was. And so, you know, he thinks he's giving this nuanced conversation about, I don't know, mental health. And all of a sudden he finds himself in a firestorm because he didn't know what he was getting into. So I, I agree with you that, yes, we in the, in the U.S., there there is just as much in terms of, you know, uh, Fox News or MSNBC is is also still sticking to a, a narrative that is, you know, either conservative or liberal, but you don't have the same level of attacking and vitriol that you have in the UK. And I put it down partly to this notion that there is a level that, whether it's the UK press or the UK public, believes that it is okay for you to rise a level of success, a level of celebrity, and there is a max, a cap that they are going to put on that. Whereas in the U.S. in general, while there is, again, nepotism is not new. <laughs> nepotism is not new to any, any place. Just because you, you call it nepo babies now, those same people existed 100 years ago and they were the Rockefellers and the you know, Morgans of the world. But now you at least are able to call it out and speak to it rather than just pretending it's not happening. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast. And we're funded by subscriptions to our brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. If you do want to subscribe and you get content in the paper that you can't read anywhere else, do check out subscription details over at our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. I think subscriptions start for as little as £3 a month sterling. So check it out, bylinetimes.com is where you'll get your subscription details. Let's bring in Omar Moore to the conversation. Now, Omar has been a contributor to our spaces before, so I know that he is a Brit who lives in the United States. So he's got a perspective from both sides of the pond. Omar, welcome. Adrian, thanks very much. Really appreciate uh, the space, as always. Just a couple of things I wanted to say. I think there's some really uh, salient things that everybody said um, about institutions, about the fact that Harry is really dealing with two institutions, obviously the UK press and the royals. And your question about the casting of the way the UK media versus the US media looks at all of this. Obviously, in the UK, the UK press and media are painting Harry to be some kind of scoundrel and worse. Here in the United States, at least the way I've been 
looking at the interviews and seeing these things, it seems very much to me that there is a kind of a white male saviorship view toward Harry as a knight in shining armor who, with this story, has somehow vanquished the institution of the royal family, which he clearly hasn't. The book makes very clear that he, as you've mentioned and others have mentioned, is a monarchist, believes in the institution. But I think the reason why I say this is because I think the book has been received even better here than it has in the UK, generally speaking. It's been flying off shelves here in San Francisco as just one example. And the second reason is, is that we here in the United States love a story, love the story of, and because we seem to be a bit more as people in general, a bit more anti-institutionalist in some ways. Whereas in the UK, there are a lot of people who love the royal family, are much more institutionalist, tend to be more led by the UK press on a daily basis, believe more of what they read. And although that's not necessarily only the UK, it does happen here sometimes. But my point is, is that here in the United States, we love a story. We love a hero. We love a heroine. And it seems to me that the interviews that Harry's given here in the United States to Anderson Cooper and others, Stephen Colbert as well, I think, and it's really the press that's doing this, I think the U.S. press, I think, is setting up these stories as this vanquishing hero, Harry the hero, trying to come in and puncture the monarchy. And, and it is really, a, in my view, an act of white male saviorship. And now I know that Harry isn't necessarily probably seeing it that way based on the book, but I do think that the U.S. press is casting him in that light, especially for an American public that loves this kind of story. And so that's the difference between the way the U.S. press, I think, is casting all of this and the way the U.K. press is. And then finally, again, I want to come back to this point about institutions. There's not one, there's two. I think, as people have said, I think R.S. Locke has said it and others, that they act hand in hand. They are hand in glove, as we know. The U.K. press and the royal family are married to each other. And I think that is really what's going on. Harry's fighting two uh, institutions. But I don't think he necessarily wants to get rid of either of them. I think Abba's made this point. It's not as if he wants to destroy the monarchy, and it's not as if he is in the business of trying to do that. And I think uh, Mick said this as well. Isn't he certainly not some kind of Republican Marxist? I, I just think in, in closing here, Adrian, I just believe that when you look at all of what we've looked at in the last week or two, there is no winner. Harry's not the winner. I mean, the monarchy, if anything, wins out of this. They remain the predominant and very oppressive institution they've been for hundreds of years. And Harry, I guess, wins in a small modicum of fact because he's clearing his conscience to a degree. But he still is going to go through what he's going to go through. But then I think, Adrian, about how this applies to the rest of us as people, whether we're in the U.S. or the U.K., the everyday person and the way that these institutions oppress people in general. I think that's a really important question that needs to be developed. If not in this space here tonight, then hopefully in other discussions that have been had, because I think that's a very important question. Feel free to develop it, Omar. When you talk about the royal family being an oppressive institution, I think to people raised on the British tabloids, that would be almost an unsayable concept. What, what do you mean by it? 
Yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, because of the history of the royal family, the history that it has wrought all across, not just the UK but across the world, because of all of the kinds of things that were going on in Kenya in the 1950s. We can go through all of the global impact of empire. We would have to expand the discussion, Adrian. But I suppose the, the, the question is, though, to what extent the royal family as an institution is responsible for that? We do not have to go back very far to, to pontificate and, and just discuss that question that you've posed. And as someone who is the head of the royal crown, someone who has a great deal of responsibility for a lot of those things indirectly or directly that happened to many people in Kenya, which is why you saw a lot of people, not just in Kenya, in places across the African continent and beyond, who quite frankly did not have a lot of tears to shed back in September of last year. I think that's a valid conversation. Go on, Mick. Yeah, I think Omar is spot on. I think you know, something that is not taught in British schools, but should be is Operation Legacy. From the 50s through to the 70s, thousands and thousands of pages of colonial records were destroyed by the British government to prevent a true reckoning around what the British Empire did, the crimes of the British Empire. We burnt the evidence, we destroyed the evidence. And that evidence was destroyed under the reign of Queen Elizabeth, by the British state, she was aware of that because she received red boxes every day telling her what was going on. So the royal family for me, you said about our press being racist, about racism in the UK. I think the existence of the royal family is like a boot on the neck of the United Kingdom. I think it really does hold us back. I think it keeps systems of power and control that are deeply racist embedded in our society and i think monarchy plays a huge role in that and when you look at harry's book i think what's interesting when again i'm talking about the two institutions and rs has talked about it as well you look at the media one thing that is very important if you consider the british media's response to this is talks about harry's problems with the media etc but things it doesn't mention it doesn't mention how he names Rupert Murdoch. He calls Rupert Murdoch an evil person who has an evil influence in the world, something I happen to fully agree with. He also names Jonathan Harmsworth, Viscount Rothermere. So when you look at the way the, the book is responded to, you have to remember that Rothermere, that Murdoch and Murdoch's representative on earth, Rebecca Brooks, are all named in one way or another in the book and criticized directly. And that criticism, unless you read the book, is not discussed or presented in the British media. I will give one exception, which is that the Press Gazette, the trade sort of paper of the British press, have discussed the fact that Rebecca Brooks is mentioned in the book. But broadly, the media in general ignores the fact that these media proprietors and senior media executives are discussed in it. And you've got to ask yourself there, well, what kind of media do we have? It doesn't tell the story accurately because it's not talking about criticism of extremely senior figures and of the two biggest media proprietors, Jonathan Harmsworth, Viscount Rothermere, and Murdoch. That doesn't get mentioned. Viscount Rothermere, for people who don't know, owns the Daily Mail empire, which includes obviously the Daily Mail, the Mail on Sunday, and also the hugely successful Mail Online and, and, and as well. 
Yeah, which is a, a free daily newspaper, just to let listeners in the United States know, which has a, a very significant uh, readership. Let's bring in Esther. Hello, Esther. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for this discussion. I was born in London. I'm Black British, and I was a journalist in London for almost 10 years before I moved to New York and was a journalist there for almost eight before then moving on the continent. I offer that as context to what I would like to share, which is that I think part of what is happening with the story around Harry, um, Meghan, and issues around race is the world is getting a lesson on specifically how racism functions when it comes to Great Britain. And it's not something that they've necessarily understood. I think I heard somebody talk specifically about the professor who thought they gave a nuanced interview to the Daily Mail and it turned into a firestorm. But what I would have said to that professor is if you'd said to black British people you're doing any kind of interview with the Daily Mail, first of all, its nickname amongst black folk is the Daily Fail, that it is established and known for being overtly and unapologetically racist. And although can I can I just say, Esther, there. Can I learn? Can I learn before you before you go on, yeah, go on. I have no problem with a challenge, but just let me make if I can make my point. And so what Britain offers specifically when it comes to issues of race in comparison to America, is what I call the illusion of inclusion. There's always this idea that Britain, when it comes to race, is not like America. There's this idea that you always hear it, this narrative, or well, at least it's not as bad in Britain as it is in America. And I've always said that that's always a lie. As somebody who's lived and worked for the media in both places, that that has always been a lie. Britain's racism is what I call quietly lethal. But it's become very loud because Prince Harry happens to be part of an institution that guarantees a global platform for whatever is being said. And what is happening with Meghan, although in terms of her physical appearance, and she's spoken about not really passing as black, but discovering that she's being treated as a black woman, is the world is seeing how the um, tabloid media responds to issues of race and particularly Britain's relationship to race and racism. The monarchy is part of a colonial and racist institution. Part of what it does is uphold that. It doesn't do that in a way that is overt at all, but it is lockstep with the tabloids, which is a 98% white male institution that controls narrative when it comes to predominantly white family, many of whom, frankly, are not even English, according to the definition of what the monarchy represents. So I think that in this moment, in 2023, we're actually getting access to and insight around is how racism functions. For Prince Harry personally, he's getting his own education as he's spoken about. He was absolutely, will he or will he not topple the monarchy? I don't think it will be about him. I think that when the queen died, we saw in major ways how those who were colonized and their descendants across East Africa, Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, the Caribbean, Ireland, Asia, You saw some of the anger with this narrative of this collective unified mourning. And there was a silence and a suppressing of those who were colonized and their descendants of their anger at what was a colonial reality. When Britain had to settle the case against the Mau Mau, do you remember when Donald Trump talked about very fine people on both sides with the Charlotte uprisings and the terrible killings that happened there? William Hague stood up in the British Parliament and said about the Mau Mau that there were atrocities on both sides. 
Now you're talking about colonial times when Britain was seeking to continue to colonize the lands and the people of Kenya, and they were fighting for their independence. And Haig saying that there were atrocities on both sides is the equivalent of Trump saying they're fine people on both sides. It's just that the way that Britain's racism manifests is with very nice accents, a cup of tea and a cut glass accent. But it is about the illusion of inclusion and the challenges. So many people fall for that and have a romantic notion for this England that is not real. And what Meghan and Harry have introduced, particularly the world to, is how specifically racism in the media functions, but also how when there is a challenge against that racism, the institutional gaslighting that happens, that for black people, whether they might be in America or in the UK or on the continent, is a very familiar reality. Esther, uh, it's not for me to to tell you how black people regard the Daily Mail. I just want to, in fairness, which is why I was keen to interrupt you at that point, just offer as counter-evidence something I'm sure the Daily Mail would point out, its role in bringing the killers of Stephen Lawrence to justice at a point when nobody had been convicted for his killing. They printed the pictures of five men on their front page and used the word murderers, which opened them up for potential libel action. And two of those men were subsequently convicted. And Stephen Lawrence's mother, Doreen Lawrence, said that that front page headline on the Daily Mail was a turning point in the police's treatment of the killing of her son. And I think that you make a powerful point. I would also say part of the issue of institutional racism is people think that they can offer individual examples of activity that they think counters the institutional racism of a newspaper like the Daily Mail, and it just doesn't. Thanks very much indeed, Esther. Great to speak to you. Thank you for joining in. I hope we speak again. Ava, you wanted to comment on something that Esther has said. Oh, yeah, I really agreed with what Esther was saying and what Omar said before. But just to point out as well that, the Daily Mail thing when it came to the Stephen Lawrence murderers. We can't forget that Neville Lawrence was actually doing some building and decorating for Paul Dacre, and that's how that connection was made. So it wasn't like the Daily Mail just out of the goodness of their hearts decided to do what they did. There was a personal connection there, which is how it often works in the media. It's about who you know. Thank you. Go on, RS. I think Esther's point was a good one, and around just this notion of, on a global level, a spotlight being shown on what racism in the UK looks like. And Adrian, to go back to your earlier point about, is this a US versus Britain thing? And you know, almost like this little nationalistic rivalry, there's part of that, but also part of it is this sense of each country taking a nationalist line of what racism looks like and whether there is racism in the country. And I think for a long time, the UK has basically said, we don't have racism like you do in America because we didn't have slavery domestically like you did in America. So we don't have that same history. We don't have that same legacy of how racism exists. And that actually was something that a royal reporter said directly and, and really shocked me at the time. And so I think there is this lens now of, okay, now in the, the biggest spotlight in a, on the biggest stage, because it is dealing with the royal family, that notion that racism doesn't exist in the UK, which again, to, to Ava's point, to Omar, Esther, Black Brits would say, we knew this already. <laughs> we, we live it every day. 
I think for a lot of people, we we are have learned and understood not just that, you know, it is there, because of course it is, everybody gets that, but how it manifests and the gaslighting that comes on top of that. And then also just the sense of national identity based in being able to claim that racism doesn't exist. You know, Boris Johnson commissioned a report that basically said institutional racism doesn't exist in the UK and got a lot of criticism for it. But that was a government report that was making that claim. So that's the level of gaslighting that we're on. And that's just something that as an American was something I was not prepared for coming into this space. It's been an education for me in terms of understanding British media, understanding the British monarchy and understanding British government, because government is just as much a part of the gaslighting as part of what I think about as the three stools of the British establishment, that they are all working in lockstep and they all need each other. And so to me, I don't think we're too far off in terms of what everybody is saying, just that it has been an education, partly because the spotlight is brighter, but also because the dog whistles are now like a siren. It's no longer an attempt to mask just because the criticism has been at such a high level. And what I tell people all the time is, you know, the UN issued a report saying that the UK media was anti-immigrant, racist, had all of these issues. So it's not as if Harry and Meghan and their experience is any different than what is happening or has happened to Raheem Sterling, Diane Abbott, or Muslims in the UK. Now you see how it is all one continuation of the same story. Let's speak to Renetta. Hello, Renetta. Hello, and thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to speak. I work in California and work with students on a university campus and have worked with lots of universities. And I think it's very interesting that this is a high level look into historical systems of power. I I work in the diversity equity and inclusion space. And I do see some of my colleagues who are here in this space today. But a lot of the students that we talk with and work with, and particularly many who are also reading the book, they're thinking and asking questions about role models related to systems of oppression. And who are our role models going to be who can uphold the kinds of missions and values that we want to see? They want to know what and where are our institutional models that are going to share values of inclusion, that are going to share values of respect for humanity. They want to know how will infrastructures be either designed or reconstructed to support communities. And they want to know where is accountability for injustice and who's taking responsibility for helping to right wrongs and how systems of power are at play. So there are lessons here and there are observations that are being made around the world. And, and I think it's interesting to see that point. Great to hear from you, Renetta. Thank you very much indeed. Take just one more caller because our guests have been here for a good time and I don't want to impinge too much on their good offices, but it's been a fascinating conversation. Let's bring in Patina. Hello, Patina. Welcome. Hi, Adrian. Thank you so much. I'm actually here because I'm a huge fan of R.S. Locke on Twitter. So I'm very happy to be taking part in this. Aren't we all? (laughs) R.S. is brilliant. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a writer and a lawyer from Zimbabwe. And I am a huge watcher of the royal family. And I just want to bring two perspectives to this. It seems to me that what's happening with Harry is the culmination of something that started with the abdication 
of Edward VIII. Now, hear me out. The difference between Charles, King Charles III, and his great uncle David is that Charles simply has better press. He has the press on his side. Because if you look at what happened with uh, King Edward and Wallace, right? He married a divorcee, a twice-divorced American woman, and he was forced to abdicate because, of course, the Church of England wouldn't allow him to marry uh, a divorced woman. Now, if you fast forward a couple of decades later, you have Charles admitting on television that he committed adultery with a divorced woman, Camilla. And those of you who are old enough may remember that at the time, there was a lot of talk about whether this meant that he could be king after all. So he spent the next few years rehabilitating his own image and rehabilitating Camilla's image. And as a result, he made a Faustian bargain with the press. He basically put himself and his wife's fates into the hands of the press. So what that meant is that he created a system that is absolutely craven to the interests of the press, right? It seems to me, reading Spare, that the family is absolutely fearful of the press and they are too cowardly to push back, even when they know that they've gone too far. So what that means to me is, I think the question has to arise, what exactly are the values that this family stands for? What values drive this family? Charles, remember, is supposed to be the head of the establishment church, the head of the Church of England. He's supposed to be a constitutional monarch, but he comes with all of these hangers on. What is the point of the royal family, really? We keep hearing about how they're supposed to represent some sort of ideal. Do they? And is this who people in the Commonwealth wants to be the head, especially for those Commonwealth countries that have the monarch as the head of state? You really want this family over there in England with this weird dysfunction being the head of states in Caribbean states, in Australia, in Canada? I think it's absolute madness. So I think what Harry has done is he has exploded onto the stage the dysfunctional nature of this family and its weird, strange, craven, and I would even go as far as saying cowardly relationship with the press. And for that, I think he's to be congratulated. He's obviously a monarchist. He obviously wants to be part of the whole thing. He's in the line of succession to the throne. So I don't think he's going as far as some of us would like him to go. But I think by just opening up the family to scrutiny and letting in some air and sunlight, I think he has raised a number of important questions about what values really this family stands for. Great comments, Patina. Thank you so much for joining in. R.S. Locke, I just wondered, does the, is the dysfunctionality inherent in the institution? You know, but it's, it's a royal family in 2022. Can it only survive by being dysfunctional? And I actually, I had that same question um, and ask, ask often of, you know, is this a is this a nature versus nurture type of thing? Because I think that's also what's come through in the book Spare. You know, Harry had the belief that some of the traditions and the corruption, if you will, within the institution, that he and William were going to be the ones who put a stop to it. So I think in the Netflix documentary, he talks about we had made this commitment that the the tradition that his father's office had had about basically leveraging whether it be his siblings or ultimately his sons in order to get better press, that he and William weren't going to do that to each other. In that way, they would 
change the direction of the institution and that they would do it differently. They wouldn't fold to the press. Ultimately, what you see is that the institution kind of breaks everyone to their will. And you have the same air and spare trajectory that has played out over multi-generation. And so to me, that's really where the question of what is the role of not just the institution, but the family members, because one of the things that is part of Queen Elizabeth's legacy is this whole idea of bringing in extended family members, so cousins, siblings that aren't in the line of succession, and putting them on the UK national payroll and doing that under the guise of them being ambassadors, both domestically and abroad, for the Queen and being able to increase the soft power of the family. And I think where the questions come in is, what does that cause when you basically have these figures, so whether it be Prince Edward or Prince Andrew and now Harry, who are trapped in this system, but then put forward as if they have some actual power and some agency when really they don't? And what happens when that push for agency collides with their role. And I just remember really vividly Prince Edward on the Caribbean tour that he and Sophia took, he was sitting in front of the president of the country. President wants to have a real conversation about reparations and around how do we move forward, understanding the history and the legacy between our countries. And Prince Edward basically had to laugh it off and say, that's not what I'm here for. I can't really do anything about that. And this is the person that you've sent as a representative of the queen. If you can't have that conversation and have a real discussion, why are you here to sing and dance and grab some gifts and souvenirs on the way out? What is your purpose here? And so to me, that's really, again, as you look at what are the questions we're asking, it's what role do these ancillary figures within the royal family play who are not the current monarch or the heir? And then also to, to Patina's point about values, I think what we've seen over last few weeks, but even before that, is that when push comes to shove, these projects and these causes that the royal family purports to support, there's not a lot of teeth to it. You have a whole Heads Together campaign that was cited broadly as helping to reduce the stigma of mental health. But then when one of the leaders of that campaign says, hey, I went to therapy and this is some of the realizations that I've had coming out of therapy, Camilla's friend and now the editor-in-chief of The Independent leads with a headline that says Prince Harry is trapped in the cult of psychotherapy. And again, just the whole notion that you campaigned on mental health still have a charity, still they're going out, you know, even as this headline is going across the nation and the world, are going out trying to purport yourself as mental health advocates. How can anyone look at you with any level of seriousness? It's, you know, it's the same thing that we saw with Prince William as he speaks out about racism in football after the World Cup. Even if that came from the best intent, no one can take you seriously when you let your nephew be likened to a monkey and we're silent. So those are the things that I think, you know, again, as, as we go forward and question, what are the values? What are the role of the institution? 
and why now many of the cracks are becoming much more evident is because they're being asked those types of questions. Maybe those were things that if you, a, a pretty tiara and a nice dress and a front page story, like that was all that people were asking of the monarchy. Mick, does it ultimately illustrate the fact that the strange institution that is the monarchy can only exist with the complicity and support of the media and that the media wants it to know it and that if as a royal you step out of line because you have not accepted your place in the pecking order, then you'll be punished for that. Yes, I think it does. And I think also there's something interesting in your question, which is where you say this strange institution. One of the things that the British press likes to do a lot of is to sort of say, ah, the monarchy. It's this funny anachronism that we have, but it doesn't really have any influence on anything. It's got no power. It's just a kind of symbolic thing that we can hold on to, but it's purely symbolic. Well, it's not because the Queen and now the King are allowed to exempt themselves and members of their family from laws. They get to see all laws and have a veto on those laws. It's not just this decorative bauble. It has an effect on our lives. The Duchy of Cornwall is effectively, you know, stolen. Um, the I, I, my, One of my ancestors was a man called Robert Kett, who was involved in a rebellion to try and stop people from enclosing common lands and when i look at the royal family what i see is theft really of many things theft of public spaces theft of huge amount of land and we are told that these people are a good thing and worth having there and they do a lot of good things for charity the other thing about them doing a lot of good things for charity is in order to keep themselves in that position they only do that charity as a part of a way to give something for the press to write about and to show themselves as good people. If they could get away without doing that, they most of them would. So yeah, it does tell us a lot about the relationship between the media and power in this country, and the royal family represents a level of power that is unearned, and there are many other people who have unknown power in this country who want the royal family to stay there because the royal family staying there stops other unearned power being questioned people like Rupert Murdoch are unearned power because Rupert Murdoch bought his way into the British media in 1969, continues to have an oversized influence on British politics. And of course, someone like Harry writing about someone like Murdoch is going to be, if not suppressed, then not talked about properly because it all starts to fray the edges of this patchwork of power that undermines true democracy in the country we live in. And actually, that's why the Harry book matters, because when you start to pick at the ends of this, it unravels a lot of things. Some things that Harry himself didn't really even intend to unravel are unraveled by it. Mick, it's been great to hear from you. Thank you. Check out Thank Mick you, over on Substack. Broken Bottle Boy. Thanks also to Ava Vidal, that twerking girl. You'll find her on Twitter. And thanks also to... R.S. Lock. Been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you for listening. Thank you to those of you who've taken part and apologies for those of you who we haven't managed to get on. You've been listening to Byline Radio or on Catch Up, the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Get details about how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. My name's Adrian Goldberg. Thank you very much indeed. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.